for all of the rest of you this morning. If you've brought your Bibles, and I hope that you have, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. I want to start in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. The first chapter of 1 Thessalonians is only 10 verses long. Let's begin by reading it, and then we'll go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love, in patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God in our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye become followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. And from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we just humbly come before you this morning. We thank you for the good day and the many blessings. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you've given us to gather here this morning, to worship together, uh, to hear your word read, proclaimed, taught. Lord, we thank you, Lord. What a blessing it is. We take it for granted, I'm afraid, too often. So many places in the world do not have the freedom or the privilege that we have here this morning. So we know that that is a gift that ultimately comes from you. So we give you all the praise and glory. But we thank you also for everyone who has sacrificed, who has fought, and who has bled, and who has died, so that we might have this freedom, but we give you the glory. And Lord, I just pray, as we go forward here this morning in this service, God, that you're glorified in everything that is done. Lord, that everything would be pleasing to you, and would be according to your will. And Lord, I know that we cannot accomplish that on our own, so we're, invi we're inviting you into this part of the service, and we're asking, Lord, for your guidance and for your direction. We're asking, Lord, that you would move in a mighty way in our midst and do what only you can do, and we'll give you all of the glory for it. Lord, we just pray here this morning, Lord, that you'd move upon the hearts and the minds of each one that is here. Lord, whatever the needs are among us, Lord, I don't know what they are, and even if I did, there's probably not a lot I could do. But Lord, I know that you're the great physician. I know all true healing comes from you. I know that you are the comforter. Lord, I know, uh, Lord, that every good gift comes from you. So Lord, I'm just praying here this morning, God, that you would just move 
<coughs> in a mighty way here in our midst. And God, that you'd have your way and your will in our hearts and our lives, Lord God. <coughs> Lord, not only would you give us the touch that we stand in need of, but God, that you'd draw us near to you. Lord, that we would feel your presence in a mighty way. Lord, that we'd know that we've been in your midst and in your presence and that we've heard from you here this morning. But Lord, I pray especially this morning, if there is any among us that do not know you, if there is any that are lost and undone, any of not sure where they stand with you, any that's maybe just grown cold and indifferent, God, let today be the day. Let today be the day that they would come to themselves. Lord, let today be the day that they would wake up. Lord, let today be the day that you would pour out that old-time Holy Ghost conviction upon them and, God, that you wouldn't give them any peace until they would repent and get things right with you before it's everlasting too late because the most important thing in this life is our walk with you. God, have your way and your will in our midst here this morning. Lord, I need your help. I cannot proclaim your word. I cannot preach your word. I've got nothing worth saying lest you give it to me. So, Lord, I'm asking, Lord, that you clear my mind of everything except for your message, your thoughts, your words. And, God, I'm asking that you'd help me here this morning. Lord, place the very words you'd have me to say right on my tongue, Lord God. Lord, help it just to flow, to roll right on off. Lord, my desire is to preach, Lord, from, from, from you through my spirit to their spirit, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that they would receive your word this morning. Lord, let us have ears to hear what you would say to us. And Lord, I'm just asking for your anointing, Lord. And so, Lord, just have your way and your will and we'll give you all the glory. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We praise your holy name. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. You know, yet for those of you that were here yesterday, you saw a pretty good-sized crowd of people here. I had no idea what turnout would be like. You never know for, you know, weddings and things like that, if there'll be a big crowd or not. And as I looked across, our, as I sit there in the back, and I looked across our sanctuary, of course, there was a lot of thoughts and things going through my mind. But one of the things I thought about as I looked out is there were so many people here and I wondered how many of them knew Jesus and how many didn't. I looked across and some people I knew, some people I didn't know. And I got to thinking just how full, of the, how full the world is of people who need Jesus. And if you begin to think about that and realize what it is, the plan that God has put in place, how it is that he desires for those people to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus is the one and the only one who saved us from the sin that plagues every man, woman, and child. None escaping from it, none exempt from it. And when you begin to think about that, you should begin to realize and your heart should begin to be burdened with the fact that each one of us, every single believer, needs to be an evangelist. 
What I mean by that is every one of us, I don't care if you're called to come and preach behind a pulpit like I am this morning or teach a Sunday school class or, 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 or not called to do that at all. It doesn't matter. None of us are exempt from the calling to be an evangelist. None of us are exempt from the calling to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. Every one of us needs uh, to be an evangelist. Uh, and, and it's as simple as this. And I want you to think about this, all right? Maybe this will help it make more sense. It's been said, this isn't something I come up with. I've heard it said many times. It's been famously said that evangelism is like this. It's one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Get that picture in your mind. One beggar that has found the source, found the place, found the bread. And it is that beggar, right? And what we're talking about today is the bread of life, right? It is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. That's all evangelism is. That is what we, when the Lord said, it talked about being about, when he was 12 years old, being about his father's business, right? That is what his father's business is. That is what you and I need to be about. When Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians here, right? This, the, what we call the book of 1 Thessalonians is nothing more than a, uh, an epistle, a letter to a church. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica. There's two letters to this church here in the scriptures, in the Bible. That's why we have 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. It's possible that Paul wrote more letters than just these two. But we, but we have these two here in our scripture. And so he wrote this letter, this first book of Thessalonians. And he did, when he wrote it, he did not know uh, all that was going on in the church. But he did know that there was a growing, thriving church there in Thessalonica. And he knew that their faith was spoken of uh, in the entire area, right? People all around was talking about it. Why is this? Because these people did not keep their faith uh, uh, to themselves. I think that's a problem that we have, right? Is we keep our faith to our faith to ourselves instead of sharing it with other people. You know, I, I, I it's amazing sometimes, you know, how human nature works, right? You see something uh, that really excites you or you, you hear something you think is really funny or entertaining or, or, you know, maybe it was a movie or a TV show or a book that you're reading or a YouTube video or whatever it is that's got a, that you think is really great, got a, maybe a really interesting twist or a valuable piece of information in it or you just thought it was hilarious or whatever and you look for an opportunity, right, to tell other people about it. Well, that is how we ought to be with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have found the bread of life, right? You have found the one thing that man needs above everything else. And we should be looking for opportunity. We should be excited for opportunity to tell another beggar where to find the bread that we have found. That's what this church in Thessalonica, that's what they were doing. As I thought about this, I thought we should, I was thinking about what an impact they were having for Jesus. They were living a life 
that was having a dramatic impact in that area for Jesus. And I was thinking, you know what? We should all want a life that impacts the world for Christ. So as we look at these scriptures here, this first chapter, I think there's some things that we can glean from this. As a matter of fact, I want to focus in on verse 3. If you might have noticed, or I don't know if you noticed or not, but there's three words in verse 3 that probably familiar with you, and and you found there faith, love, and hope. Right? Uh, that's actually mentioned, uh, that, it, faith, hope, and love is mentioned in a single verse again later in this same letter, in the fifth chapter. But you probably know that and are familiar with that from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what we call the love chapter. So that's something that Paul talks about and something of great importance. But there's a little more that is added to it here. And so I think, there, I think we find three natural divisions here when we look at the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. That's the phrases that the Apostle Paul used here, or the, really the Holy Spirit wanted to be conveyed to us. I think these are evidences of a life that has an impact for Jesus Christ. So let's look at the first one here. Work of faith. Your work of faith is this. It is a life that is marked by change. Right? I think that's... <coughs> I think as you, if you study this passage of Scripture, that is what Paul is getting at. That is a point that he is trying to drive home. Second uh, Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, if any man... Be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. So if the the work of faith that he's talking about here is a life that is marked by change. Well, what kind of change are you talking about, preacher? Well, here's the kind of change I'm talking about. The first thing is a change of direction. Look on down in verse 9 for just a minute. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned... Right, if you were in our Bible study Wednesday night, we talked about that word turned, right? That's a key word for repentance. And as you go through and look at the verses having to do with the doctrine of repentance and repenting and what that means, what the, in other words, what the Bible teaches us about repenting, that turned or turn is a word or a phrase indicating to turn is what you're going to see over and over and over. Here the scripture tells us uh, Paul is commending them how they've turned to God from idols, right? And so the first thing of your work of faith is a life that is marked by change and that is a change of direction i'm afraid that that there are going to be a lot of people who think that they are saved uh, who in reality are lost they're going to stand before god one day at a day of judgment and they're going to realize uh, uh, that they are not who they had convinced themselves that they were there was no change that it took in place in fact there may be some that are sitting right here today I know for sure, I mean as sure as I can, I guess, uh, that there was some sitting here yesterday as well uh, that might have fooled themselves and convincing themselves they were all right, but their life, there was no work of faith in their life, meaning there was no change had taken place. Listen to me. This is what I say for what it's worth. Show me a life that has no real change. 
and I'll show you a life that does not have Christ. Anyone who rebels against the Bible and its clear teachings, they're rebelling against God. I, I would, there's a good chance that they're lost. You know, growing up in a Christian home is not salvation. That's the thing I've always worried about with my own children. Uh, is them growing up in a Christian home and the, and the son and the daughter of a pastor of a preacher, you know, and just being raised in church and just, you know, being a Christian from as long as they can remember pretty much, you know. Uh, I've always worried uh, that they would just assume that, you know, they have raised in a Christian home and by godly parents who took them to church and so therefore they must be saved. It was just something that was inherited. It was just something, you know, who they are they identify as listen to me being raised in a Christian home is not salvation uh, just going to church is not salvation you know the funny little story that's told all the time coming and sitting in a church don't make you any more of a Christian than going and sitting in a garage where will make you a car you know uh, I, I'm telling you here this morning you have got to have your own personal encounter and it is a life changing encounter with Jesus Christ as we go through the scriptures everyone right every life uh, uh, that it, when they encountered Christ uh, and had a true encounter with him there was some, there was a change that took place there you know some folks just their lives are eaten up with idols because they've not turned from their idols Right? That's what Paul is commending them here for in verse 9 is they have turned to God from their idols. They've turned away from their idols and they've turned to God. Sadly for many of us, we have not turned from our idols. We just want to add God to the idols that we already have. You see, that was a problem they had in that day and time in their society. And we, we don't think of it the same way because we don't make, you know, we don't have little carving images that we put up on the wall in our house that we worship or we don't have a, a high hill that we go out to where there's these big totem pole looking things that we go out and worship, right? We don't have these false gods like that that, you know, that we go out that are so obvious and plain and worship. So whenever the Bible talks about idols, we think, oh, well, we're good from that. We don't have any idols, you know. Well, I'm telling you something. Anything that comes between you and God, anything that you put before God is an idol to you in your life. And see, what our problem is, is we want salvation. We want a relationship with Christ, but we do not want to turn from our idols. We just want to add God to what we've already been doing, right? We want to add God to our life just the way that it is, and we want to continue to serve our idols, and we want a little bit of fire insurance on the side, just in case. That is not salvation. That is not a relationship with God. That is a ticket to hell. You know, your family can become an idol to you. Your job can become an idol. Your possessions can be an idol. Anything that you put before God comes before God in your life. You're putting in the place of God. And it has therefore become an idol. But not only, I mentioned a change in direction. 
not only is this work of faith, this new life, being a new creature in Christ, not only is it marked by a change in direction, but it's also marked by a change of desire. Look at the rest of verse 9, right? I read to you where they turned to God from idols, but look to what it says after that. To serve the living and true God. That was a change in their desire. They had no desire to serve the living and true God before they had turned from their idols. Before I turned from my idols and accepted Christ and really got saved. Now look, I'm one of those, I've told you before, I spent my whole life, right? I raised in a home uh, that claimed to be Christian. If you would have asked me, I would have told you uh, that I was a Christian. Uh, God dealt with me at different times. I wrestled uh, with some things at some different times. But anytime somebody asked me, I quick to say, well, there's no way I'm not a, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not a Buddhist, I am not an atheist, I am a good, red-blooded American Christian. That's what I would have said. Of course, if you'd analyze that statement, you'd see a lot of problems and a lot of flaws in there. You might have been able to perceive what I really was. But there come a moment and come a time there come a point when I was willing to turn from my idols. I was willing to surrender it all and turn to Christ and accept Him. And when I did, there was a change in my desires. There was a change in my want to. See, he's talking about their, their, this church, these people here, they were marked by their change, right? Was something that stood out was they no longer desired to worship them idols. They didn't, they didn't desire to go and participate in the, you know, the, the things that they did before. They did not desire to participate in those fleshly, worldly, sinful things anymore. There was a desire to serve God. There was a desire there, right? It's the same thing happens to us when we get saved. There's a change in our want-tos, a change in our desires. All of a sudden, I've told you this before, used to, I ha- Sunday, I hated Sunday. And I always thought in my mind it was because Sunday's around the corner and I've got to go back to work. Truth is, I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I wasn't doing what I ought to be doing. And that was one of the first things that I noticed, right? That was that change of desire. Sunday went from my least favorite day to my most favorite day. I couldn't wait to come to the house of God. I couldn't wait to gather with God's people. Couldn't wait uh, to, to, for the Sunday school lesson and to be able to discuss it. Couldn't wait to, uh, to hear the word of God preached. I was excited. Couldn't wait. What is it that the God has got for us that the preacher is going to preach uh, this morning? There was a change in my desires. I no longer go out and corral around with my old friends like I used to and go out and do ungodly things. All of a sudden, things that I used to watch on TV or hear people say or would even say myself that didn't bother me a lick, all of a sudden these things, all of a sudden now, they hurt me whenever it happened. There was a, there was a you know, it was a cringe, a prick. I don't know what the right word to use here, but it bothered me that didn't used to bother me. When somebody would tell dirty jokes, whenever somebody would take the Lord's name in vain, when you would see all this uh, uh, worldly, fleshly things on TV, right? All the sensual things and all of those things. So they were marked 
this work of faith, it's a mark, it's a change. Change in their life, not who they used to be. Change of direction. Change in desire. Can I ask you this morning, do you hunger and thirst for God? Have you spent time with Him this week? Have you spent time learning about Him recently? You will never have the, that desire filled for Him without spending some time in His Word, in His book, in the Scriptures. Now, I talked to you this morning about the work of faith, and I need to move on or I'm going to run out of time here. But the next thing it says is labor of love in verse 3. Right, verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love. Your labor of, of love is a life that is marked by commitment. Right, that's what that labor of love is, a life that is marked by commitment. What do, you might say, what do you mean by that? Well, what I'm saying is, is if you say that you're saved, but yet you do not serve God, then you're not who you say you are. Right? Does that make sense? If you say that you're a child of God, if you say that you're saved and that you live for Him, but then you do not serve Him, does that not make you a spiritual fraud? I think so. That might be a little harsh, but I believe that's true. When you do not serve God, then what you have is a love problem. Do you ever think about that? Labor of love. When there is no desire there to serve God, and you do not serve God, then there is a love problem. Think with me for just a few minutes. Remember when Peter denied the Lord uh, Jesus three times on that fateful night. Do you remember that? When Jesus turned and looked at Peter, the Bible says that Peter uh, departed and wept bitterly, right? With just that look from the Lord. And so now go with me forward in time after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Go with me to the Sea of Galilee for just a moment. And then you have that morning when the Lord has appeared there. And Jesus is standing on the shore and he's got breakfast there with him. And Peter and the rest of the crowd are coming to that breakfast that morning. I believe that Peter, now this is just my own thought, but I believe that Peter probably had a hard time looking Christ in the face. See, he was expecting probably a well-deserved tongue lashing, right? He was expecting Christ to get on to him for his failure, right? But instead, Christ, I believe, took him aside and dealt with the root of Peter's problem. Do you remember what he asked Peter? He says, do you love me? Do you love me? You see what I'm saying? There's a love problem there. If you do not have a genuine commitment to Christ, then you have a love problem. When you do not spend any time reading your Bible, right? That's God's Word. That's how He communicates with you. That's how He reveals Himself to you. you have a, when you don't spend any time with Him in that manner, you have a love problem. When you do not pray, right? That's how we directly communicate with God. Cast our cares upon Him. When you do not pray, you have a love problem. When you do not witness, 
when you do not tell other people about the goodness of the Lord and, and that beggar where to find the bread that you have found, when you do not share the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, when you do not do that, you have a love problem. When you do not or are not faithful to the house of God to come and give. I mean, now think about it this way for just a minute, right? It's not about me. It's not about the other people that are sitting here. It's not about this building. It's not about the name that is on the sign out front. It's not about any of those things. It's about gathering together and worshiping God in spirit and truth. Is he not worthy of that? Of course, I think if we'd be honest, we'd all agree he is worthy, right? That is so, such a small thing that we could do, right? To, for, compared to how much he's done for us. But when we do not, when we will not even take the time to do that, and will not even be faithful in that, do you know what kind of problem you have? It's a love problem. It's a love problem. A commitment to Christ means following his commands. That's why Jesus himself in John 14, 15 said, If you love me, keep my commandments. I mean, how much more clear can you get than that? Jesus said, if you love me, right? It's as simple as this. If you love me, you'll do what I've asked you to do. You'll keep my commandments. And then the third thing here I wanted to point out to you in this third verse, the patience of hope. Your patience of hope is a life that is marked by confidence, right? Hope, and and I've explain this to you i've tried to explain this to you before right when the scriptures talks about hope it doesn't talk about hope in the manner that we think of hope right we think of hope as you go down here and buy a lottery ticket and hope you win right you know that you're not going to but you hope that you are and i hope none of you are wasting your money on lottery tickets but anyways my point is is that's how we use the word hope but that's not how the scripture uses the word hope hope uh, the way the scripture uses it is a confident expectation right a hope in the return of Christ, not that we hope that hopefully maybe he might come back. We know we have a confident expectation. We know he's coming. We don't know when. We don't know the timing, right? But we know for sure that he is coming. So this patience of hope means it's marked by confidence, right? It means steadfastness, right? The foundation of this confidence is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the evidence. That is, as the scripture says, the infallible proof that Jesus is who he claimed that he was, is the resurrection. Verse 10, if you look at verse 10, right here in the middle of it, it says, well, the first part says, and to wait for his son from heaven... Whom he raised from the dead. Whom he raised from the dead, right? That's the resurrection. And the fulfillment of this confidence is that he rescued us, right? What's the rest of verse 10 say after it says, Whom he raised from the dead? Even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come, right? They had the the, the church, these people in Thessalonica... Why were they doing what they were doing? How could they go out and do what they were doing? They had confidence that Jesus would come again and rescue them from the wrath to come. Therefore, they wanted to be found waiting and working for him. They wanted to share this glorious news with everyone. So, I have some real... I've been doing a lot of thinking. And I have some real hard questions for you this morning. My first question 
Be honest. God knows. You're not answering me. This is between you and the Lord. But here's, here's my first question. Is our lives having an impact for Christ? Is your life having any sort of an impact anywhere for Christ? Let me, let me, let me ask you another question. And this one hurts me even more. If our church, and when I say church, I mean this gathering of believers here that meets on a regular basis in this building. If this local congregation was to shut its doors forever, close and lock the doors and close the place down, would anyone miss us? Would anyone in the community even notice that we were no longer here, that we were no longer meeting, that we were no longer assembling, that we were no longer serving God? Who? Who in our community? Who around us would miss this church? I'm asking that because I think that's a way to get at, are we having an impact for Christ? Are we having any kind of an impact for Christ? Does this church have an impact on our community around us? On the town here where we're at, on Mountain Grove? On the communities further out, Norwood and, and, and Kabul and so on and so forth, right? Or do we have any kind of impact in the area around us? Does the world see in you a real difference or do you just blend in? That's the heart of it. That's the root of it. Is our lives marked by commitment? Or is the commitment like the story I heard of the young man that wrote a note to his sweetheart? And this is, Ethan did not write this note to Cassie, okay? Just in case you were wondering. Here's, here's what he wrote. Honey, or sweetheart, whichever you prefer, if this world was as hot as the Sahara Desert, I would crawl on my knees through the burning sand to come to you. If the world would be like the Atlantic Ocean, I would swim through shark-infested waters to come to you. I would fight the fierce dragon to be by your side. I will see you on Thursday if it doesn't rain. Now, in all seriousness, that was meant to be funny, but in all seriousness, is that the kind of commitment that we have? We'll be there if it doesn't rain. If nothing, if, if we can't think of a single excuse and nothing can impede us and we can't figure out any reason not to, then maybe. Is that our commitment? Or should it be more like the song that says, where he leads me, I'll follow. I'll go with him, with him, all the way. I think that's the kind of commitment that God is looking for from us, requires from us. Um, I can't remember, I wish I'd looked it up and wrote it down. There's a quote from a famous missionary from the 19th century. 
that had made a request to talk about how ripe the fields were in Africa uh, and had made a request for uh, the mission society to send more missionaries, more young men to help him in the field. And I think they had wrote back something about inquiring if there was a good road to where he was at. And he said, if the, if the ones that you've got only come, if there's a good road, I don't want them. What kind of commitment do we have? How far are we willing to go? Is that why, are we making an impact? And if not, is that why we're not making an impact? Well, Jennifer comes for a song of invitation. And I ask you this morning again, are you living a life that is impacting the world for the cause of Christ? Is your life marked by change? Is it marked by a confident expectation of who the Lord is and what he's done and what he's going to do? Would you stand to your feet? I want to open the altar and I want to give you an opportunity to come this morning. If you've got a need, if you've got a burden, would you come this morning? Maybe the Lord's been dealing with your heart. Maybe there's something been going on. Maybe you realize this morning you're not where you ought to be. You're not who you who you thought you were or claimed to be or maybe you just realized this morning you're lost I'm begging you would you come before it's everlasting too late if you've got a need if you've got a burden maybe there's somebody on your heart you need to be praying for them seeking what the Lord would have you to do would you come this morning whatever it is don't miss this opportunity would you come this morning